Welcome to podcast 40 from Football Aranha, your home of Dutch football. Today, I, Michael Statham, am joined by regulars Michael Bell and James Rowe, plus special guest Tom Cundert, who will offer his opinion on Ajax v Benfica in the Champions League. We'll also discuss PSV to be Tottenham and evaluate the Dutch national team's one-all draw with Belgium. You can listen to us and download this podcast on YouTube, SoundCloud and iTunes, as well as our new home on football radio station, Football Nation Radio. Enjoy. Okay, well, um, thank you, Tom, for joining us today. Uh, I don't know if you'd just like to introduce yourself to our regular podcast listeners. Uh, yeah, hi there. thanks for having me, no problem. Uh, well, I'm a, football, a Portuguese football journalist uh, based in Lisbon here. I've been living here for about 24 years now. And uh, basically just immersed myself in Portuguese football. And uh, uh, luckily for me, it's kind of coincided with a bit of a boom in Portuguese football. If you have a look at the Seleção, the national side, and even the club sides, what they've done in the last uh, 20 years or so, uh, it's been very exciting. And of course, when you've got players like Cristiano Ronaldo and coaches like Jose Mourinho, uh, there's never any lack of uh, talking points. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to this match. Uh, it should be a fantastic match. I'm sure we'll get on to all the ins and outs of it. Mm. Uh, but the first thing which kind of comes to mind for me is two of the most historic sides in the history of European football uh, meeting. So, uh, you know, hopefully they can do justice to that uh, fantastic history they both have. Yeah, it's, it's a very historic match between two great, great sides. Um, what do Benfica fans know and expect from this current Ajax side, though? Yeah, well, generally, Portuguese football fans are quite uh, knowledgeable uh, about, you know, foreign sides. Having said that, I think perhaps this Ajax side is a little bit unknown because uh, I know they've got, uh, you know, they've had quite a lot of turnover and quite a lot of young players, as is always the case with, uh, with Ajax, of course. They've got a fantastic tradition of bringing through players from their uh, from their academy and uh, I think what most Benfica fans know about this Ajax side is probably just looking at their results uh, and their performances this season in the Champions League and uh, it's a little bit of a worry because <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know standpoint because it's really pretty much perfect start doesn't it Ajax have made they just swept aside uh, you know, IAK off Athens, and then uh, got that fantastic result uh, at Bayern. Uh, and you know, I just saw the. Uh, I think, like most people here, just saw the. Well, obviously, Benfica were playing at the same time, so we just saw the highlights of that match. Uh, and very, very impressive, of course. Uh, you know, I think Ajax were uh, a bit unlucky uh, not to win that match, to be honest. And so, uh, there's no doubt about it. Uh, Benfica are going to have a. A huge task to try and bring something back from Amsterdam. Um, if I now come to James and Mike, uh, what, what do you guys think will will likely happen in this match? Are we going to see the Ajax team that can sweep aside um, even very good European sides? They're a force to be reckoned with in Amsterdam. Um, what do we expect on Tuesday from Ajax? I think they'll use the same attitude they used when they started out at AK Athens, where they were showed so much passion and so much determination to get a positive result. But then again, Benfica are no AAK Athens. Tom makes a fantastic point about the rich history of both clubs. 
And, uh, you know, I do think the game will, will do justice. I mean, I've managed to get a ticket for the match and I look forward to attending on Tuesday. And uh, since the draw was made, you know, for a lot of people here in Amsterdam, a lot of Ajax fans, it's not just the um, the fact they're in a group with Bayern Munich, they also respect Benfica and the rich history they have. I think it's going to be a real fantastic game that will do justice to the reputations of both clubs. And I my, my prediction for the game is, is a 1-1 draw, actually. For me, I expect Ajax to take the game to Benfica from the start. If you look at their recent results, they're on great form, especially at home. You know, they just hammered um, Izzard Alkmaar a couple of weeks ago, 5-0. They beat Heerenveen so easily um, yesterday as well, 4-0. Um, they've got so much attack and talent, I think. They're going to know that this is the game. This is the key game for them in this group stage. The home one against Benfica, if they win it, it sets them up to not only challenge Bayern for the top, but also... They'll know that if the AK Athens aren't going to win a couple of games, so that if they win this one, it's basically assured that they'll be, you know, in Europe in any competition, either the Europa League or Champions League, past the winter, which is what their objective was going into this. And I think this is probably the biggest game for Ajax um, they've had so far. I think the draw at Bayern was unexpected, and the win against AK Athens was. I think this game is uh, the pressure one for me. Well, Tom, as you can see, that there's plenty of expectation from the Ajax camp as well. Um, and there's some really exciting players at the moment coming through and are leading this Ajax team. Um, and they're, they're also featuring the Dutch national team too. Um, so are the expectations um, still very high with Benfica fans? Are they expecting to win this match? Um, and what are the expectations of Benfica overall for this Champions League campaign? Yeah, I think that's a really good point made by Mike just a while ago, saying this is really the key game for Ajax, and I think it's the key game for both Ajax and Benfica, isn't it, really? This one, and that, well, this double-header, you can say. I think probably this double-header uh, will go a long way to deciding who finishes second in this group. Uh, with all due respect to AEK uh, Athens, you know, they, they weren't really particularly impressive uh, when they played. Benfica at, uh, at home in Greece and so I would be quite surprised if they uh, you know if they didn't finish last in this group uh, Bayern they haven't started well but you know they're Bayern Munich and with all the power they have you expect them to probably win the group and so you know these next two games uh, are really I think they're going to decide it. If, if one side can take four points I think that will probably be decisive uh, as for Benfica's expectations I think when the draw <coughs> when the draw was made, uh, I think most Benfica fans were fairly uh, pleased with the draw, fairly confident. You know, one very strong side, one pretty weak side. I think it's fair to say, and one probably at the same level as Benfica. And uh, given that Benfica had an absolutely disastrous Champions League campaign last season when they lost six out of six in the group stage. I think this season, uh, most Benfica fans, they just want to kind of restore a bit of pride uh, in the side. And uh, I think they, you know, they think they've got a chance. Uh, like I said, perhaps expectations were a bit higher uh, before we saw what Ajax did in the first two matches. Then afterwards, uh, you have to say at this point in time, very difficult to, to split the two sides, but perhaps... I'd make Ajax a slight favourites just because, you know, that could be a very important point they made, that they got at uh, Bayern Munich. And so I think I'd probably make Bayern Munich, uh, sorry, I'd make Ajax slight favourites to finish second. 
<coughs> which of course means that Benfica, uh, it's absolutely vital for them to try and avoid defeat. So I think, uh, you know, a draw, if Benfica can get a draw in the Amsterdam Arena, they'd, they'd be absolutely delighted with that. Hmm. So, Tom, I had a quick question. Uh, Rui Vitoria has been in charge of Benfica for quite some time. Are the yeah. Benfica fans and board still satisfied with his work? Do, can you see him staying there uh, long term? Well, that's a good question because if you have a look at his record, <laughs> of course, he, he followed on from Jorge Jesus, which uh, was a very hard act to follow because... George Jesus is really the manager who kind of restored Benfica to the top of uh, of the football tree here in Portugal because they really had a terrible time before uh, George Jesus was appointed. Fifteen years, they'd only won one championship, and you know, very often out of the running very early in the season. He came in, uh, completely turned around their fortunes. They won the championship three times in six years, always challenging right to the end. Uh, had some good runs in Europe, uh, mainly in the Europa League. And, uh, and then when he left and Rui Vitoria uh, was given a job, uh, you know, a lot of people were quite worried that, uh, whether he could maintain that kind of level. And uh, it's, it's quite curious because looking at his achievements, he's actually done pretty well. He's won two championships out of three seasons uh, in his first season. Uh, they also got to the Champions League quarterfinals, which was uh, better than actually Jorge uh, Jesus ever managed. But uh, having said all that, he's, uh, he's, a, he's a coach who I think most Benfica fans aren't particularly enamoured with, even given all these achievements. Uh, why? Because he, he tends to, especially in the big matches and in Europe, uh, he tends to be seen as far too conservative. Um, not really uh, kind of uh, you know, taking the ball by the horns, not really kind of trying to impose an attacking style, uh, very much adjusting uh, what Benfica do and how he sets up his team to the opponents and, uh, and just having a very poor record, uh, full stop really, against Porto and against Sporting and in the big games in Europe. And so uh, although he's got a good record overall, uh, he's not really, I'd say, you know, Benfica fans are still kind of 50-50 with him. I think uh, a, a lot may a lot may depend what happens this season in Europe, you know, if they have a good uh, showing in Europe and also if they uh, if they manage to reclaim the league, which they lost last season, then he'll be back in their good books. If neither of those things happen, then I think, uh, you know, he may be on a bit shaky ground. Interesting. Thanks very much. I noticed the. Uh, I watched the game, uh, the derby against FC Porto, and I saw the yeah. tremendous finish from Harris uh, Sevelovic. Do you think he will play a key part on Tuesday? Yeah, yeah. And uh, if you if you'd said either of those things about two or three months ago, Benfica fans wouldn't have believed you because he, he came to Benfica last season. Uh, he started off quite well in pre-season. He scored a lot of goals, and even in the first ten games or so. Uh, he scored three or four goals, looked like a good signing, and then his form just completely fell off a cliff, and uh, he was really uh, completely out of the picture by about Christmas, January. Barely played, uh, and when he did play, he just looked, uh, he just didn't look uh, up to standard, to be honest. You know, kind of big lumbering centre forward, certainly not in the in the style of uh, most Portuguese forwards who. Uh, perhaps they're, they're not so big physically, but usually they're endowed with you know, quite a lot of skill. 
and uh, so it looked like his career uh, was actually coming to an end, you know, a bit of a damn squib of an end, uh, and uh, especially when Benfica bought in two strikers, uh, Ferreira from uh, Argentine striker, from Shakhtar Donetsk, who came with a big reputation, and also a Chilean striker, Castillo, who did quite well in pre-season. And uh, both of those players were uh, initially tried out the first few games. Uh, then, and of course, Jonas, who's been the, the number one striker for quite a few seasons now, he, he's been injured most of the season. What happened? Uh, Ferreira has just proved a bit of a flop so far. He just has hardly... I think he scored one goal. He's also had some injury problems. Castillo picked up an injury. Jonas, like I said, has been in, injured for most of the season. So Seferovic uh, got back in the side, and he's just been an absolute revelation. He's just been a transformed player. He's been really good. He's, uh, he's, he's got his confidence back. He's scored some good goals, like you said, some important goals. He scored a goal against AEK Athens, and that very important goal against uh, Porto, uh, you know, a lovely finish that was, first time on the run, thumping finish into the into the bottom corner, and his whole play, he's just, uh, you know, he looks a different player this season. So yeah, absolutely no doubt he will be. I expect Benfica to play four three three, and uh, Seferovic will be the uh, the starting striker for sure. Thanks, Tom. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to ask you a question then. If those are the strengths of Benfica, what are their weaknesses? Um, are there any weaknesses in defence that Ajax might look to exploit? Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Uh, I perhaps wouldn't go so far as to say Seferovic was a strength, even though he's, he's done well this season. I think uh, probably the, the most dangerous player for Benfica this season is Salvio. Uh, you know, the Argentine wingo has been, been at Benfica for a long time now. Uh, very skillful player. Unfortunately, his, his career at Benfica has often been halted by very very bad injuries I think uh, although on the on the one hand if he didn't get his injuries then he he probably wouldn't still be at Benfica because he's a he's a fantastic player really and is quite often he's been on the cusp of a move uh, I think at, at one time was all signed sealed and delivered to go to Liverpool and then he got uh, in the la- very last game of the season he he did in his uh, cruciate uh, knee ligaments and so that was aborted and so, uh, but he's been back to sparkling form this season. I'd say he's probably the most dangerous player uh, Benfica have. Uh, as for their weaknesses, they definitely do have uh, some quite uh, obvious weaknesses, which Ajax might try to exploit. I think that the right back, Andre Almeida, uh, is is a, is a bit of a curious player because he's never really been a favourite. Uh, of the Benfica fans and uh, and even the critics, they they tend to give him a lot of uh, you know a bit of a hard time, and I think most of the time justified. But he's been there for five or six seasons, and uh, he's he's got that right back spot. He's made it his own. But for instance, in the game against uh, AEK Athens, uh, Benfica went two 0 up, and then they just had a player sent off, got completely lost, and. Uh, AEK pulled it back to 2-2 and uh, they were a bit lucky to win that game in the end, Benfica and uh, Andre Almeida just had an absolute disastrous game, just gave the ball away time and time again and uh, the left winger for AEK just like made mince meat of him so so that could be a worry for Benfica and then also uh, their centre-backs uh, for this particular game I think they've, they've got quite a you know, a big problem on their hands because Ruben Diaz, who's probably the best centre-back, 
Uh, he was a young centre back, very tough tackling, uh, consistent, very uh, promising from the Portuguese point of view, promising player. But uh, he got himself sent off. He's sometimes a bit rash and got himself sent off stupidly in uh, in Greece. So he'll be missing this game, suspended. His usual partner Jardel has been injured the last couple of weeks. Uh, there's a few reports today saying. Perhaps he'll be okay for the Ajax game, perhaps not. So uh, even if he is, he, you know, he may not be 100%. And then because of this, uh, because of these problems at centre-back, uh, Benfica have used both uh, two Argentine centre-backs, uh, Conti and Lemma, who they brought in this summer. So we don't really know too much about them because they've hardly ever played. They've both played one match in the last couple of weeks and both of them ended up getting sent off, <laughs> would you believe it, in the last few minutes. So, uh, so you know, big problems there in the, in the heart of the defence. So that's definitely something which Ajax, I'm sure, will be looking at and trying to exploit. To me, this sounds like Ajax have got a huge chance in this game. Um, and I think they'll have really high confidence as well after some great results in the league too. Um, where they've been quite ruthless in front of goal, um, something they may have been lacking last season, they're certainly not this season. And there's a lot of attacking players that will look to really go 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 at Benfica in this match. Um, I just wondered if we get some predictions from all of you. Should we should we start with Mike? I'm going to go for a positive 2-0 victory. Um, I think the Jan Cruyffrey will be rocking for this one, and I think uh, Ajax will do the job. My prediction is 1-1, considering the current standings of, uh, of Champions League Group E, with uh, Ajax four points, Bayern Munich four points, and Benfica three points. I just think it. I think part of the match will turn KG at some point, and um, I my prediction is is one-one. Yeah, I agree. I agree with uh, I agree with my there about. I think it probably be a KG match. Uh, of course, you, you never know the, uh, an early goal, and that could change. But I think. Because, like I say, Benfica will be uh, pleased with a draw without doubt, especially because of all these problems they've got at centre-back for this particular match. Uh, I think they'll be quite defensive and uh, uh, they'll be hoping to, you know, to, to just to scrape a point. But uh, I do think that's really too many problems they've got for, at centre-back. And uh, with the form Ajax are in and the form they've shown, uh, I think I'm going for an Ajax victory, perhaps 2-1. Yeah, I might also say a 2-1 win for Ajax. Um, it sounds like things are going in their favour and in Amsterdam they should be heavily favoured, uh, in my opinion. Well, um, Tom, thank you very much for joining us on the Football Annual Podcast. Um, very much appreciated for your, your time there. OK, no problem. Hope you enjoy the match, uh, but perhaps don't enjoy it too much. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much, Tom. Muito obrigado. Okay, obrigado, Will. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, so our second match uh, that we should preview this week um, involves another Dutch team in the Champions League, PSV against Tottenham Hotspur. Um, This is another tasty match, and especially in Eindhoven, it it should be very tight. We saw PSV lose narrowly to Inter Milan in their last Champions League fixture, um, in which they were unfortunate not to get a point. But, I mean, do, do do you not think that Inter Milan ultimately outclassed PSV in the night, had that little bit extra experience that maybe Tottenham could carry again? For me, yeah. Um, I think the biggest problem PSV have in these games is their centre-back duo. Uh, Schwab and Verhever is not a Champions League centre-back partnership. Um, they got found out 
by Icardi time and time again for Inter. Um, he, had, he missed several chances um, during the night. It could have been much worse for, for PSV that night. And uh, I don't really fancy the chances up against Harry Kane, um, you know, one of the best centre-forwards in the world. He might have a field day if, if Tottenham are on it. Um, you've got to hope that at the other end, PSV can do something because um, I can certainly see Tottenham scoring at least one in this game. Mark Van Bommel is the first PSV manager to win nine Eredivisie matches in a row. They've scored 36 and conceded three. And um, I think their confidence is extremely high. And I think the way that Van Bommel has got them believing, I mean, Mike made a tremendous point in the last pod, you know, about the the, the, the way they're so proactive and, and how they seem to be steamrolling everything in sight in a domestic front. And I think sooner rather than later, that's going to that's going to blossom in a European match. And not to the extent where they'll win convincingly, but, for example, they may pick up a point or they might get a win, which nobody really expected. And I actually think that with uh, Tottenham's away form in Europe, you know, losing in Milan in the past, they haven't got positive results in uh, in many European destinations, even getting knocked out by Genk, uh, Gent you know, from Belgium in the Euro- uh, Europa League a couple of years ago. I think, because this match is in Eindhoven, I can see PSV picking up a point, and my prediction is 1-1. I think PSV will win this match. Um, I, I feel quite confident. Um, perhaps, <laughs> I hope I'm not riding too much of a crest of a wave. Dutch teams do tend to slip up um, in matches you expect them to win. Uh, but th- this, this, this does favour PSV. I don't think Tottenham have been the most convincing on the road um, this season in the league. Uh, I'm looking, you know, since they lost away in Inter Milan, they um they 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 beat Brighton two one, they beat Huddersfield two nil, um and West Ham one nil. So they're not convincing huge victories, and I just think that if Pearce can really apl- apply the pressure, they can get some goals. And um, yeah, of course you're looking at Harry Kane on the other end of the pitch, uh, and I I think Hendricks is going to have a, a tough time on his hands trying to keep some of these attacking midfielders quiet, especially if Ericsson plays. So. We'll see how that one goes. Um, but yeah, in terms of the league, just briefly, PSV 9 out of 9, um, that, that is such an excellent start. Is that down to Mark Van Bommel? Is that, what, what has he changed so much about this team this season? Uh, winning mentality. Um, I've had to eat my words very quickly when I stated on this pod that it's a bit of a jump from the PSV under 19s to the first uh, team. But I've been made to eat uh, lots of portions of humble pie because the career that Van Bommel has had and what he experienced as a captain at world-class clubs, and to be so authoritarian, even when he's addressing the media, you know, you can you, when you listen to him, you realise this is a manager that hasn't just played professional football; he's played at the highest level um, domestically, and also um, for for his for his country as well. And I think he gives that team an entire boost where on the training field he gives them little uh, tweaks of advice, takes them to one side, tries to help them. And I think they all buy into the fact that they're being advised by someone who had a stellar career and, um, you know, went on to achieve many positive things, uh, captained his, um, his country to, uh, to a World Cup final. And um, I just think these small detail is, is really paying off. I mean, you can see yesterday against Emin, they're falling up at half-time. 
and to go uh, to go to keep pushing to get more goals and Van Bommel even said that in his post-match um, interview that for him the most impressive uh, part of the night was not the 6-0 win but was the uh, defensive um, uh, the defensive um, ability of Angelino to retrieve a ball that was just going over the line to, to keep a clean sheet so they're always wanting more it's still very early in the season I don't think they're over the hills and far, far away already but it's just, uh, as you say, uh, Michael, a tremendous uh, achievement, nine out of nine, especially with the, the goals return as well. And I just think that at some point in this Champions League group phase campaign that they're going to get a result, be it away from home or, or most probably at home, that, uh, that not many people expected. It's a bit of a last chance saloon for them as well, isn't it? Because even already, you're looking at have them having to do spurs over these two legs and get at least four points to be able to finish above Tottenham um, and at least finish third. Um, finishing second already looks a little bit unlikely. Not that it's out of the question, but it's already going to be a difficult, difficult task, isn't it, to finish any, uh, anything above fourth place in this group? It's um, do or die on Wednesday, I think, in Eindhoven. Um, I know you're saying that the prediction was a draw, but if, for me, if PSV don't win this game, um, I can't see them getting much else out of Tottenham away, Inter away and Barcelona at home. Um, I know Barcelona haven't had you know, the greatest start of the season and Lionel Messi's injured, but um, you know you fancy them as big favourites for that one as well. So I think if PSV, they're so confident in the league, if they can take some of that confidence into the Champions League, get a result against Tottenham, get a, get a win, which would then boost them against going into the away fixture in, uh, in London. I think if they lose this one, then I think they're, they're going to finish bottom. But for me, the biggest thing that Mark Van Bommel's done is he's got that front four clicking. And um, they've scored so many goals, but there's not one out-and-out goal scorer who's just run away with it. If you look, De Jong's got eight goals, Lozano's got eight goals, Pereiro's got seven, Bergwijn four. All four of them, he's kept them basically playing constantly. And the, you can just see the partnership of all four of them is uh, really clicking this season. And uh, they're, for me, one of the best and most clinical front lines in any European league. Winner on it. Yeah, no, I think um, I think Mike's got make, made some very good points uh, as usual, especially in terms of PSV. And um, yeah, I just think it'd be a good match. I think PSV. Uh, I think they're always well up for European home games, especially in the Champions League. You saw in the past the atmosphere they can create when they played uh, PS, uh, played Atletico Madrid at home not so long ago. And um, yeah, I think I think Tottenham are in for a bit of a shock, to be honest. Okay. Um... Before we talk about uh, our last topic this week, um, I'd, I'd just like to point out a couple of results that happened in the area of this weekend. Um, and one of the, 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 the surprising ones to me was VVV Venlo yet again winning and, and sitting in fifth place in the league. Um, just, just to show that actually that all of these wins at PSV are accruing and yet there are still teams that are doing well at this level and are pushing the top three. Um, and I'm, I'm looking at Heracles, Ve Ve Ve, um, who are surprising yet again. Um, do what, I just want to get your thoughts on, on the surprises so far this season. I've, I would I mention Excelsior too. Oh, yes, uh, certainly. The Excelsior manager was the, phys, was the physio of Excelsior Rotterdam for the last 25 years and he was given the top job and he was uh, everyone thought it was like a, a little bit mean in terms of is this is this really happening 
and to beat a very a very decent uh, Vitesse side, okay, with home advantage, but you still have to beat them. Excelsior are currently sitting sitting in eighth position, having won three, drawn three, and lost three. I think that deserves a, a decent mention. Uh, Hudeclerc as well, as you know, and listeners of the pod will know, I tip them to go down. Uh, again, once again, my humble pie is coming in by the bucket load and by the truck load, but it's still it's still a long old season as we know only too well. And again, with Faith of to being fifth, I think full credit to Maurice Stein because I know that he was approached by certain clubs and he didn't give too much away in terms of who they particularly were, but he would always state that, that it wasn't something which made him want to leave uh, Faith of Enlo. And I think sticking to his guns is really paying off. And um, he, he often stated in previous interviews in the run-up to the season that he was a bit, not sceptical, but just a bit wary, wary as to how the, the squad would react to him going into a fifth season. But, I mean, he's just so committed to the club. You know, you've got to remember he commutes from uh, the, the Hague to uh, Venlo every day for work and, and to manage the team. And I think sticking to his guns is really proving a, a masterstroke, really. And uh, it be interesting to see how far they can go this season. Yeah, definitely. And it's good to see some different teams doing well. Um, on, the, on the flip side, you've got RZ Alkmaar that are currently sitting in sixth, having won three, only three games out of nine matches. However, um, Mike, good news on Calvin Stengs this week in terms of RZ and the Dutch national team. Hopefully, it's a really quick recovery now back to the first team. Yeah, he played for the under-23 sides in the, the second division on Friday, won a penalty. Um, but good, played an hour. I was expecting him to maybe be on a bench for the league tie at Utrecht, but they just want to give him a little bit more rest. But he should be back in the first team next week, and uh, they desperately need it because that side is definitely lacking something at the moment. These players just aren't clicking like they did last year. They're missing Jahambakash and Veghorst desperately. Um, there was a lot of hype around Gus Till, but that seems to be falling flat now because, you know, they named him captain, but he's just not impressing anymore. He was left out of the Netherlands under-21 squad, um, which was big news in, in the Netherlands at the time. It's just something not going right there. And I saw uh, the John Van den Brom out tweet start again um, yesterday in the the coach is starting to come under pressure. Yeah, I think it would be wise for us to mention Groningen as well. You know, to lose um, to lose five out of the last six, it's looking a bit ominous even now in terms of, I think, in the next couple of weeks, Danny Baus may well be replaced. And I think it's critical for Groningen now that they, um, that they select the right manager going forward. I stated on a previous pod uh, not so long ago that when Danny Baus was appointed, uh, Oron Jans, who's uh, um, behind the scenes working at Groningen, that helped to appoint him, said that this is for the long term and this is what we want to achieve. But the fan unrest as well at Groningen, you know, getting knocked out of the uh, knocked out of the uh, the Kaiva Bay Baker as well. You know, it's it, it's all it's all becoming a little bit too much. But um, very interesting about um, Van den Brom uh, out tweets that Mike just mentioned. Because I think you know that's uh, that can be quite telling, and who knows, there could be some um, could be some openings coming up in the new year, perhaps. Yeah, and um, interestingly, Honingen's next fixture is PSV at home, so another really tricky tricky fixture for the for them. And we're full circle back to PSV um, because some of their uh, best young players at the moment are starting to get into the Dutch national team, and 
Sunderland played yet again in the Belgium 1, Netherlands 1 friendly fixture um, during last week. Um, what did you guys think of that performance? And were you impressed with any of the players? Um, Rosario made his debut. Yeah, for me, it was um, another very positive performance for the Netherlands. I think they started slow. I think that's it's an aspect of Netherlands when they come in, they seem to start slow, but grow into games. And uh, after they got the equaliser, they were, for me, the better side. Um, I know Belgium took off probably the best players at halftime that has is no Lukaku's, but in the second half, I think Netherlands were lucky at times not to win it. Um, for me, Memphis was once again a standout, but I enjoyed what I saw from the debutants. Um, you know, Dan Juma got his goal. He played well. Um, Denzel Dumfries, I think for me, was the, the standout of for both matches. He's the one that really impressed me the most. And I think he can really hold down that right-back slot um, if he keeps playing like that and he keeps playing well for PSV. Um, yeah, it's just a, for me, it's just another exciting fixture for the Netherlands. It shows that we're once again on the right track, but it's important not to get ahead of ourselves. Uh, two big games coming up in November. If, we win one of them, we stay in this you know, top of the Nations League. If we lose both of them, you know, we could get relegated and miss out on the top uh, pot of the Euro 2020 qualifiers, which would be a disaster again. But you know, it's all very positive heading into those games and uh, I think we can definitely do something against France. Yeah, I, I fully agree with Mike's points. I think that, to sum it up for me, I think every international break, I think the Netherlands are improving under Koeman and you can't really ask for more because we all remember the dark days under, under Belinds and the um, difficulty with Advocat as well in, 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 in difficult games, not winning, having no charisma. And, you know, Koeman has been in charge since February and there has been, there has been significant progress since then in terms of, in terms of wins against Portugal and obviously winning against Germany and going away from home against Belgium and not losing. And I, I just think, Dumfries as well to be 22 and to be assured uh, so assured at international level already is something very special and I'd, I'd proclaim once again that you know he's come up through the traditional route of uh, Sparta Rotterdam here in Vain and now PSV and it will give so much incentive to other young um, Dutch players coming through the domestic Eredivisie that they can do the same naturally yeah, the attributes that Dumfries has helps but I just think it's it's great that they're improving every international break and, and we'll see them improve even more I, I can't see them being relegated from the Nations uh, League pool I think they'll um, I think they'll remain there which will be a good sign but regardless of when that Euro 20, uh, qualify, 2020 qualifying draw is made they've got to really take on board especially the away fixtures because with the failure of the campaigns for Euro 2016 and Russia in World Cup 2018, in both occasions they took the away fixtures far too lightly in terms of away games in Reykjavik, in Prague, in uh, Konyaspor, and then with the subsequent qualifying campaign in Solna, in Sofia, in Paris. So they will do well to, when the draw is made, to assess and be aware that they need to perform just that little bit better especially away from home against even mid-ranked nations to assure their place at Euro 2020. For me I found that this international break was quite a landmark one because we saw um, Dumfries, uh, De Jong, De Ligt, Bergwijn. Um, these guys for me are, are absolutely going to be the core of the future 
Dutch national team sides and I don't think you'll often see them out of the team. Um, of course, we've seen De Ligt already play for the team quite a few times. De Jong made his debut in, you know, back in September. Um, but you're seeing these players actually settling into the first team. And I think that's really exciting. It's, it's such a landmark um, couple of months for the Dutch national team. I don't know if you guys agree. Very, pro very, pro very promising. It's something we've, waited, we've all waited a long time for. And it's great to see the, sh the green shoots coming up and uh, very promising going forward. Yeah, it's, it's very exciting for me, and the the best thing is, is you know, these are the core talents coming through, but there's so much elsewhere as well. Um, the under 19s, under 17s, to an extent, some of the under 21s, they're, they're full of talent. And uh, you know, a couple of years ago, we we're all talking about how how bad the Netherlands were, and there's nobody coming through, and it just shows that it's, it's coming full circle again, and uh, we're starting to produce these talents and. Uh, it's good to see that it's the Germans now that are getting it in the neck instead of us. Um, <laughs> um, you know, it's it's funny because going back onto Heracles Amo, you know, they hired the coach that was in the DFB um, German head of, I think he was head of coaching or coach selection, Frank Warmuth. And uh, since he's come to Heracles, been a, a revelation and the German coaching has, has suffered. So I wonder if there's a correlation there. <laughs> I think Germany's problem is of their own making of letting the current manager stay far too long, where the caps that he's been handing out to players that are not quite good enough, I think he's if low has thought that he's a bit untouchable, to be honest. But I recall an interview I did with uh, the Graafs club manager, Henk de Jong, on the eve of the season, where Henk de Jong, I asked him about the situation with Oranje, and he said to me that they've, they've always had good players but it comes in waves it comes in waves in terms of the generations that come and that he, he was confident that everything would be okay and um, yeah I think that's for someone who's working at the highest level in the Eredivisie and um, obviously to hear his opinion on it and <coughs> the, the way of players I think that's um, I think that's very very important I still think um, going forward they are missing a number nine striker um, if Memphis isn't there then you're looking at Luke de Jong um, or Valt Beghorst. That's the one key area that over the next few years you really need to look for someone. There's, there's talents, there's you know, Dylan Vent at Feyenoord, there's Raydan at Chelsea, Xerxes at Bayern Munich, um, Pro at PSV, Syracuse at Ajax. These are the players that need to be hopefully fast-tracked through the under-21 squad um, as quickly as possible and get them into some way into the national team as soon as possible, heading into Euro 2020 because I think that position is key. Yeah, I think I said um, after the, we finished recording our last podcast that I think Dejan Redani is the answer, um, except that he's just a few years behind his development. So, Well, sorry, not behind, but his a actual age. He's doing really well for his age, but is he going to be old enough, mature enough, good enough by Euro 2020 or if not the 2022 World Cup? Football goes really fast. We've seen that with Rosario, for example, of how quick he can get to this level. Um can Redan do that as well? Can he can he get into the get into the side by the time he's twenty, for example, or will he still will he still be too young? For me, I think he's the answer, and I think he's the one that needs to be fast tracked um, and developed further at club level and at international level to make sure that he's ready to be that number one striker. Well, there's some stories coming out around uh, under twenty one. He obviously failed to qualify for another European Championships, and one of the big questions was um, around selection policy. 
as to why you're still picking players that weren't actually going to be, you know, that are past age group or past age level um, for the next one when they because you weren't going to qualify the he picked by Bart Ramsar who wouldn't be available for the next qualifiers. Um, and he's asking they're asking him why aren't he, is he picking these young talents that are in the under 19s under 17 levels sooner because they're obviously better than what they have now. They, you know, the under 21s are playing with um, Chairo Zivkovic up front who's not exactly setting Belgium on fire when they have players like Radan, uh, Dylan Vente who are still stuck in the under 19s the under 20s when they could be fast-tracked into the under-21 squad, play against better players and become better themselves. These players play for Chelsea's under-23s, Bayern Munich's under-23s. They play against this age group. But in the Netherlands youth system, they seem to have to go through the well, under-17 level now, next year be under-19s, next year be under-21s, whereas some players need to get fast-tracked a lot sooner. I think with the failures to qualify, I think that uh, the Dutch FA will, um, will do like a bit of a... Uh, inquiry and a rooting branch as to why they failed. Um, if you look in the past of the under-21 managers they've had, Erwin van der Looy and Ard Langler, I think the, F, the Dutch FA kind of bay would would be wise to um, would be wise to uh, to look at other other candidates uh, in terms of in terms of uh, the under-21s manager. I remember when I spoke to Martijn de Rosa who's manager of the under-15s, and when we were speaking, he was saying about that the different age groups try to work in unison where they're getting players ready to make the next step. And I think Mike, make, Mike makes a good point about the players not being picked. But if you have a, a an under-21 manager who realises the entire process and lets the, lets the players... Uh, understands the process for letting players come through the, the selection policies of the different groups and finally picks them for the under 21s I think we'll see we'll see an improvement so it'll uh, be interesting to see what the Dutch FA do with that Well James and Mike thanks very much for joining me this week on the 40th Football Only podcast No problem thank you uh, You're more than welcome and a big thank you to Tom as well with uh, we finally managed to get a, 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 a guest with a, a great reputation as well. And I think it's really helped uh, today's podcast and will hopefully help the site going forward too. Brilliant. Well, thanks both and um, speak to you soon. You're more than welcome. Take care.